All right, I'm back. Good morning, Redemption. How are you? Good to see you all here uh, this morning. Uh, we are opening a new series from now until Advent, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so I'm just going to dive right in. Um, the book of Matthew, uh, many people say, is really divided uh, primarily between five major discourses that Jesus gives during the book of Matthew. And the Sermon on the Mount is the first of those five uh, major discourses. And this one is specifically a message of discipleship. It's a message of discipleship. Here is uh, what I would say is the sort of the definition of the Sermon on the Mount or the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the reality of a gospel-centered life lived in the presence and power of the kingdom of God, but set in the challenges and routineness of everyday life. It's the reality of a gospel-centered life lived in the presence and power of the kingdom of God, but set in the challenges and routineness of everyday life. So if you've ever wondered, what does it really mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Here you go. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Study the Sermon on the Mount and embrace the Sermon on the Mount. This is sort of the king of discipleship discourses for people who want to know what it really means to live a life in Christ. And I will tell you this. <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount, if you take it seriously and take it as Jesus intends it to be, is extraordinarily disruptive. Uh, this is not lakes and meadows teaching by Jesus. This is serious stuff. It's extraordinarily disruptive. He will turn our world upside down with the Sermon on the Mount. I run into people all the time who say, I just love the Sermon on the Mount. And, and my first thought is always, do you really? <laughs> because in order to live this, it is going to disrupt most of your life. If you're really going to do this, it's going to disrupt. Here, here you go. Here's how I would say it. If at times you feel uncomfortable during the Sermon on the Mount, it's because it's uncomfortable. And we should embrace that. We should understand that Jesus is trying to get us to the truth. He's trying to, to burrow in through all of these facades that we have in our world and in our life and in our own nature and the way we think about things. He's trying to burrow through that to get us to the truth. And that is always very disruptive and quite uncomfortable. So we need to embrace it. So today, it, we're introducing a new sermon series, and we have to go through some text. And so there's a lot here. There's a lot. And, and this, is, this is meat and potatoes kind of I'm sorry, we're in Arcadia. <clears throat> this is kale and craft beer kind of stuff, okay? So it's what you live by here, all right? So uh, let me give you a little more textual Introduction, um, we find bits and pieces of the Sermon on the Mount in, in uh, the other Gospels, certainly, primarily in Luke chapter 6, uh, probably the biggest portion of the Sermon on the Mount, other than Matthew, appears in, uh, kind of word for word, in Luke, and sometimes we'll compare those things. There's a verse uh, right at the beginning of the Beatitudes that I think we need to compare and, and talk about with Luke. Uh, but what a lot of people don't understand, which I think is fascinating, I, I, just, I just started to understand this and come to this realization about uh, seven or eight years ago, 
is that um, if you want to also get kind of a, a different perspective on the Sermon on the Mount, read the book of James. That, that little letter that James writes in the back of the New Testament, probably wrote it um, 14 or 15 years after Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, scholarly studies by PhDs in theology have made comparisons between the Sermon on the Mount and the book of James, and they find it remarkably similar. It's just, it's just worded a little bit differently. And in fact, I've even thought it would be great to do a, like a midweek study sometime, just comparing the two. So the Sermon on the Mount is not this standalone thing. It, it, it is something that permeates the entire New Testament. This is really the heart and the mind of Jesus that's poured out here. But Matthew is certainly the most comprehensive and the, most, the one with the most uh, narrative flow, these, these three chapters here. And it says that it's the Sermon on the Mount. And we're not, a, we're not 100% sure which mount this is, but uh, most people understand it to be that, that big slope on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, Jesus kind of standing on the side so that there's, there's good acoustic qualities there, but it's also a very beautiful setting with the Sea of Galilee behind it, kind of behind him or behind the audience. We're not sure which way everybody was facing, uh, but very beautiful setting. And then uh, most people also understand that at the end of Matthew, Matthew 28, the Great Commission was also given in that same place where the Sermon on the Mount was preached. And so a lot of people make the connection between when Jesus says to his disciples, all authority has been given to me, go therefore and make disciples, uh, baptizing them and teaching them, teaching them all that I've commanded you, uh, that is an implicit reference back to the Sermon on the Mount. This is primarily what, what Jesus wants taught to these new disciples. This would be the first thing you get going with a new disciple of Jesus. Uh, and, then, and then further, you see that Jesus sat down to teach. Now, that's different than in our culture, but philosophers, teachers, rabbis, and even lawyers in antiquity during ancient times, they sat in order to teach or to make their, their rhetorical presentation because uh, in, in their context, the one sitting is the one who actually has authority, okay? So you all have authority over me, according to antiquity, if you want to think about it that way. But one of the, there's so many, I'm going to say this a bunch of times. This is really good. This is really interesting. Well, here's one. Uh, the great, great English preacher and author John Stott says of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is the teacher of the Sermon on the Mount, but he's also the curriculum of the Sermon on the Mount, and further, he is the classroom of the Sermon on the Mount. He's all three of those things. Well, how could he be all three of those things? Well, let me unpack that a little. First of all, obviously, he's the teacher. Probably don't need to say much more about that, but he's also the curriculum. When we talk about this is the Sermon on the Mount tells us how to be a disciple in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven, um, we need to remember that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is more about a person, Jesus, than it is about a place. That the kingdom of God is primarily Jesus. And so he is the curriculum. If you want to know the truth about life, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. So he's the curriculum. But then we get a little further, and he's also the classroom. What does that mean? Well, I'll explain it this way. Any teacher would love if the students would leave the teaching and begin to embody the teaching in their own life. 
Think about Jesus. He is the embodiment of the Sermon on the Mount. Every single thing that he teaches us here, that he asks us to do by the power of the gospel, every single thing he does or has done. And in fact, I'll make a comparison at the end. I'll show you how uh, every one of the Beatitudes, Jesus lived every one of those Beatitudes when he was on the cross. He's the embodiment of the teaching. I, I teach communication at Paradise Valley Community College. And and one of my greatest desires, it doesn't always work out so well, but one of my greatest desires is that when people, when students leave my class, that they would embody the theories and the principles and the concepts that we were teaching in the class, that it would improve their communication and that it would improve their relationships and it would improve their community. So I hope that they would, they would embody it. Well, Jesus does embody it, and that's what he wants for us as well. If we are in Christ, we are also going to embody the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Further, it tells us that there were kind of like two groups of people there. There were the disciples, and there, were, there was the crowd or the crowds. Both were there. Now, Jesus is specifically teaching to his disciples. He is talking to the disciples. He is explaining to the disciples that this is the true life of a citizen of the kingdom of God. Uh, the author Yoder calls the Sermon on the Mount the politic of one who lives in the kingdom of heaven or in the kingdom of God, the politic. Politic meaning how a citizen lives out their life in the midst of community, over and against the politic of the world. So he's telling the disciples, this is how you're supposed to live as a resident, a citizen of the kingdom of God. The others who were there, the crowd, and there were hundreds or maybe even thousands of, of people there, they were mostly just curious. They were generally just curious. They, they were... Um, this is an old uh, car buying reference, but they were kind of kicking the tires. They were there to kick, kick the tires. They were, they were very interested, but they were not committed at all. And, and the thing that they were interested in was they were kind of interested mostly in the novelty of this new rabbi who had hit the scene with both great popularity and great controversy. And so they were interested, and they were doing what many people do when it comes to faith, religion, philosophy, or worldview. They were there to get a taste, but they weren't interested in sitting down for the full meal. They wanted a taste. They wanted kind of to, to maybe feel the benefits of what he's talking about, but they didn't want to commit to the full meal. And so uh, in an effort to try to find us in every text in Scripture, one of the questions we can ask ourselves here is this. Are, are we, which one are we? Are we a disciple? Or are we part of the crowd? Are we with Jesus? Or are we just channel surfing religions at this point? And then finally, again, I find this absolutely fascinating. It, Matthew writes, he opened his mouth and taught them. Now, I've just blown by that for years and years and years. And suddenly, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit just said, you need to look at that because that's kind of interesting. Don't just blow by that. He opened his mouth and taught them. Why does Matthew have to write, opened his mouth? Of course he opened his mouth. He was speaking to them, right? Seems a little bit redundant. Kind of seems like a little bit of a waste of, a, of an entire clause in the sentence. Why would he say he opened his mouth? So one possible alternative is Jesus had the ability to speak with his mouth closed. Yet another miracle of Jesus that we didn't know about. It's not it. Okay, so opened his mouth was a somewhat common ancient Hebrew idiom. Now, understand, Matthew is Jewish, okay? It's, it's, an, it's a somewhat common ancient Hebrew idiom that carries great meaning with it. 
It means that any speaker, any speaker, before he said anything, actually took the time to consider, ponder, ruminate on, and think about what they were going to say, here you go, before they said it, before they opened their mouth to say it. In other words, they're asking themselves these questions. What happens if I say this? What are the potential consequences if I say this? How is this going to be received by the people that I'm talking to? How are they going to view it? How are they going to interpret it? Do I have this correct, or or is this just foolishness? Should I even say this at all? Now, you should know where I'm going with this. Think about this. This is kind of antithetical to our current cultural ethos, is it not? See, we live in a culture today that that mostly refuses to see the the wisdom in an idiom such as this. Our mantra today is very simply, every thought must be verbally expressed. Seriously, I hear this all day. Oh, no, it's unhealthy for you to keep that inside of you. Just get it out. You need to say everything. Whatever thought comes to your mind, you got to say it. You got to say it. It would be a shame if you didn't have a voice. So just start talking. Whatever is coming to your mind, you just need to start talking. Hey, 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 hey. Even the Messiah, this should, this should have some impact here. Even the Messiah, Jesus, thought about what he was going to say before he said it. Thought about whether it would be beneficial to those who are hearing it, whether it would build them up, whether it would be interpreted correctly, whether it would be filled with wisdom, whether it would be helpful, whether it was correct. So now let's talk a little bit more about today's text, verses 1 through 12. And I want to start with a question that, One of my favorite guys, uh, Alistair Begg, when he was preaching to his community in the 1990s and he started the Sermon on the Mount in in Luke, he asked his congregation this question. Now listen to this question very carefully. And again, I think you'll see where we're going with this. Would you rather be poor, hungry, sad, and hated, or rich, well-fed, happy, and popular. Which one would you rather be? Jesus exalts what the world despises. You see how disruptive this is? Jesus exalts what the world despises. Uh, this passage, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and just so that you know, I am speaking primarily autobiographically here. I'm thinking about myself here. But I also know that this is fairly true in the human condition. But verses 1 through 12, commonly known as the Beatitudes, really pushes against the primal and distorted human characteristic that we could sum up simply with these two words. Me first. Me first. Me first. You see... If we could have spoken coherent language when we, the, the minute we came out of the womb, the first words we would have said is, hey man, me first. Followed very quickly by mine and no. You see that? Do you ever commonly see parents teaching their little children the me first proclivity? My, my child fails to think of himself or herself first in most situations. That's a problem. I need to teach them me first. Do you see that? No, we don't have to teach that to children. Here's what parents primarily teach their kids. They teach their kids to hide the me first proclivity. Amen? And as adults, we also become quite sophisticated 
at being able to hide that me-first proclivity. Usually, we use the cosmetic, we cover it up with the cosmetic of compassion and self-righteousness. It's really just me first. This passage of Jesus' teaching really pushes back against this. Jesus exalts what the world despises. But I will also say this. This is important to get. Jesus is serious about these beatitudes. He's serious about us doing them. He's not just saying them and, and, and kind of making a nice little rhetorical argument and then we forget. He wants us to do these things, and we know that because there's something that follows each thing that he asks us to do, and he says, you'll be blessed in this way. This, this good thing will happen to you. So he really wants us to do these nine beatitudes, these nine things. He really wants us um, to do them, but the key really isn't that behavior. It's important, but that's not the key. The key, really, is that Jesus is coming along and saying, through my death and resurrection, I have now provided you with the power to be able to do these things. You can't do these things on your own. You are not capable because of sin. I am not capable because of sin to do these beatitudes that he's asking us to do. The the primary thing he's trying to get across is the power of the cross and the resurrection here for us to live this life as citizens in the kingdom of God. So here's the key. The beatitudes is not a sermon about how to become a Christian but characteristic of those who are already in Christ. The Beatitudes is not a sermon about how to become a Christian, but rather characteristic of those who are already in Christ. So the the major theme of the Beatitudes is the true nature of life in the kingdom of God, and that would be our big idea today. That's our big idea. This is the true nature of life in the kingdom of God. Again, uh, the author Yoder says this is the politic of the kingdom of God over and against the politic of the world. And so some people say, well, what's a beatitude anyway? I don't even, what what is that word? Okay, well, I've heard this answer before. It's the attitude you should be. (laughs) Okay, it's cute and very marketable, but it's not quite right, okay? Uh, The word beatitude comes from the Latin word that means to be blessed, But the problem we have here is that the Greek word that we translate as blessed or happy, some translations have it as happy, the Greek word makarios has a much deeper and more comprehensive meaning than that. It it, it really means this. It's the happiness that results from living out what Jesus teaches because this is what defines true citizenship in the kingdom of God. Uh, One author says says it this way. uh, The meaning of the word makarios is that you should be congratulated for living this way because this is what Jesus calls us to in the kingdom of God. You should be congratulated. The the Phillips Bible translation takes the word makarios and inserts, instead of blessed or be happy, it inserts jump for joy. Jump for joy when you mourn. Jump for joy when you're poor in spirit. Jump for joy when you're a peacemaker. Jump for joy when you're merciful. Jump for joy when you are poor, hungry, sad, and hated. Wow. And again, notice the pattern of these nine statements. Do this and this will follow. Maybe not necessarily now, but certainly later and certainly eternally and ultimately. And these benefits that Jesus talks about, if you do these beatitudes, these benefits or rewards that will come, the key to this is that they aren't materialistic, which frustrates some of us, me included. 
They're not really materialistic. They're spiritual benefits. They're life-giving benefits. The challenge, though, is that as human beings, again, they're important, but we usually overlook the importance of these things until, often until it's too late. It's funny how I, I've sat with so many people as they're going through the process of dying. And the last thing they're talking about is their accumulation of wealth. What they're talking about is the truly important things. My family, who is God? They're talking about the spiritual things when they're there. And let me just state the obvious. The correlation between what Jesus calls us to and the resulting benefit is nothing close to what we find in the marketplace of ideas that the world is preaching to us. Amen? Nothing close. In fact, the scholar R.T. France argues that the world usually identifies those who live this way as losers. As losers. Uh, we were at the preaching collective a week and a half ago, and some of the pastors made this suggestion, and so we put together, some of us put together uh, a comparison between the kingdom politic, the Beatitudes, and what the world politic would be. If Jesus had taught the world politic rather than the kingdom of God politic. And so I'm going to take you through that just to kind of jolt you a little bit maybe, okay? Have a little bit of fun with this too. So what we're going to have is the top verse is going to be what Jesus said, and the bottom verse is what we came up with for the world politic, okay? And I want to put each of those on the screen for you, and I'm going to read the bottom one, but I want the, the one on top to be there also so that you can kind of make a comparison. And I'll go slow. I know this is hard uh, for those of us that struggle with texts and things. But here's the first one. This is like verse 3, I think, or 2. One of them. Anyway, doesn't matter. So you can see up there, there's, there's what the scripture says. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, the world politic would say this. And Jesus opened his mouth and began to affirm them, saying, Right? Isn't that what we want in our culture? We want everybody to affirm us. We don't want anybody to tell us that something's wrong or that we need to do something different. That would be awful. But Jesus is teaching them. He's giving them disruptive truth. So anyway, Jesus opened his mouth and he affirmed them saying, blessed are those who shop on Rodeo Drive for they can have anything they want. Now I'll unpack that a little bit more in a minute. Number, verse number four. Blessed are those who party and celebrate all the time because they are the envy of everyone else. Blessed, number five. Blessed are those who are powerful and oppress others for they control the outcome of every situation. Verse six. Blessed are those who are full and satisfied for it was their personal delight to gorge themselves. Verse seven. Blessed are those who are, uh, I'm sorry, blessed are those who are cruel, for they take pleasure in making sport of other people. Number eight, blessed are those whose hearts are corrupt, for they are clever enough to hide their wickedness from God, or so they think. Number nine, verse nine, blessed are all the drama queens, for they enjoy behaving like children. It's my personal favorite. <laughs> Verse 10, blessed are those who are exalted by others when they deceive the vulnerable, for it helps them build their kingdom. And verse 11, blessed are those who receive empty flattery, for they never have to face the truth about themselves. Tough stuff, isn't it? Jesus exalts what the world despises. He turns, us, he turns this thing upside down. 
He has a different perspective. But he says, look, if you embrace these Beatitudes, you're going to find true life in them. So let's examine them uh, and then close with some application. So verses 1 through 3, again, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, he sat down and taught, and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that phrase, poor in spirit, literally means a sober, realistic understanding of our utter helplessness apart from God. A sober and realistic understanding of our utter helplessness apart from God. Uh, In Luke, interestingly enough, that verse just reads, blessed are the poor. For those are the king, uh, those uh, uh, inherit the kingdom. So blessed are the poor. It doesn't say poor in spirit, but they're really the same thing. What Luke, uh, in his gospel, is trying to get at is the fact that a lot of people believe that their salvation, their fulfillment, and their well-being will be in the accumulation of wealth and stuff. And what Jesus is saying is. You need to be poor in spirit. You need to be bankrupt spiritually, which means you need to understand that your salvation is not in wealth or in education or in power or status. You need to be poor in spirit to understand that you're utterly helpless even if you have all of those other things that make you rich in some other way. The true blessing comes when you're poor in spirit, when you understand your utter helplessness apart from God. In other words, it is a complete self-emptiness. You understand, our greatest asset in life is our complete self-emptiness. That's our greatest asset. And I will tell you, this is hard, because I know for a fact that literally one of the hardest things for anybody to say is what? I need help. I can't do this. Will you help me? It's very hard for people to say. But that's how eternal life is acquired, not through works, not through our worthiness. We don't acquire eternal life by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, by just willing it to happen, but rather by faith in God given to us by the grace of God. Spiritual bankruptcy is our only way to salvation. Um, I want you to think about this. Uh, For many of us, this was my experience as well, when we first came to Christ, when we first became disciples of Christ, We understood what it meant to depend on Jesus for everything at every moment. In other words, here's kind of a little metaphor or analogy. Uh, We lived with Christ paycheck to paycheck, hand to mouth. But for many of us, myself included, as I began to um, manipulate the true gospel so that it looked a little bit more like me and what I desired, and as I began to uh, understand how things work and I began to attain some of my own power and my own success, I began to move Jesus and the gospel aside, and, and he was still there as an insurance policy. He was there in case anything went wrong, but I didn't depend on him at every moment, every day. I wasn't living with Jesus paycheck to paycheck anymore. Jesus calls us to live with him paycheck to paycheck spiritually. Even the the, the Lord's Prayer, what does it say? Give us this day our daily bread. We need to depend on Jesus every single day. That's what it means to be spiritually bankrupt. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And then look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That word mourn literally means true sadness and brokenness over our own sin. 
To mourn about our spiritual deficiency actually leads to something that we all want. We want comfort. Amen? Okay? But it's not comfort as in a life of leisure and convenience, but rather comfort in knowing that our future is secure, that we're forgiven, we're saved, we're redeemed. We've been given the gift of God, the gift of salvation, the gift of heaven, the gift of eternal life. That that's a reality in our life. So think about these two together. Poor in spirit and mourning about our sin. This is not man-made salvation or human-made salvation or any kind of salvation that you and I devise. This is salvation from God. This is not making ourselves good enough. It's not making ourselves worthy enough. This is about trusting God, which is the gospel. Imagine in Genesis 3. Think about this. So in Genesis 3, the man and the woman, they eat the fruit, and immediately their eyes are open, and they realize they have really messed this thing up. And almost immediately, they, first of all, they hide themselves from each other, and they, and they sew together some fruit of the loom fig leaves and put those on. And, and then they hear God coming, and they run and they hide physically from God. Uh, imagine if Adam and Eve's instinct had been to run to God, confess their sin, and ask for help rather than hiding and putting on fig leaf apparel. See, this was the first sin, and it was the first attempt at man-made salvation. I broke relationship with God. I can fix it. Just give me some fig leaves. It's pretty lame, isn't it? If you think about it, fig leaves. And, and I want to tell you something. Fig leaves are the furthest thing from true comfort. I don't know... My parents had a fig tree in their backyard for 40 years. And, and a, a, a fig tree, that's about its life expectancy is 40 years. I'll tell you, during its heyday, that fig tree was big and beautiful. And, and those, those leaves were large, and they were this deep blue-green. Oh, they were just, they, the, the word that comes to my mind is they were luscious. Not the figs, the leaves. But then you go up, and, you, and anybody ever feel a fig leaf? It's like, kind of like sandpaper, okay? Imagine having that chafe against you to remind you of your rebellion against God every single day. This is the furthest thing from comfort. And here you go. Any attempt at man-made salvation is just us looking for another fig, fig leaf. That's all it is. That's all it is. True comfort comes from confession and faith. Verse 5. Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meek literally means strength under control. It means knowing that you can win in the moment, but passing because you have faith in God to take care of it for himself. Meekness genuinely points to faith in God because it says, I know he's the one in control and he has all the power. And then verse 6, blessed are those who are hungry and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, this is really important to understand. This is not a hunger for justice. A lot of people point at this verse and say, I am hungry for justice. It's not that we're not about justice. You heard Cody and I talk about that last week. That's not it. But here, this is not what Jesus is talking about. He's saying those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not a hunger for justice, and it's not a hunger for self-righteousness, but rather it is a longing and desire for total dependency on God's righteousness, found only in Christ and imputed to us through the cross and resurrection, through faith. And ironically, it is there that we find the one thing that you and I have all been looking for our whole lives, fulfillment and satisfaction. 
That's where we find it. And then verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Being merciful leads to more mercy. Okay? Uh, years and years ago, this movie came out called Pay It Forward. Anybody remember that movie? I had, a, I had a really good Christian friend who absolutely became obsessed with not only the movie, but the idea of pay it forward. He even started signing his emails, pay it forward. Okay? He was just obsessed with this notion. And I kept kind of going, trying to tell him, you know, pay it forward is really not a new concept. There's nothing new under the sun. And oh, by the way, Hollywood hasn't had an original idea since Genesis. They're all just cheap knockoffs of the gospel one way or the other. Understand that, okay? Anyway, this idea of pay it for, it's not a new concept. God showed us mercy by paying for our sin at the cross so that we don't have to. The greatest image or picture that you can have of the word mercy is Jesus hanging on the cross. You understand that? Because that's him showing us mercy. He went to the cross so that we didn't have to, even though we deserved to go to the cross and he didn't deserve it. And once we fully understand that, you and I cannot but show mercy to others. And then that mercy that we show others very often is returned to us in mercy as well. Maybe not always. Maybe not in every situation. I understand that. Sin is a powerful force in this world. But ultimately and eternally, the mercy is going to be paid back to us. And then verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, pure in heart, again, is idiomatic, or uh, another way of saying it is it, it's a synecdoche. It's a, it, 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 the, the word heart in Greek literally means the core of who you are, your, your soul. It, it influences your entire being. If, if you're this way in your heart, then you're going to be this way all the time, everywhere. And so it's, it's something smaller representing something bigger. And what Jesus is trying to get across here is the idea of the gospel being integrated into every part of our life rather than segmented. Again, you heard Cody talk about this last week, about how a lot of us will come and we'll do the Christian thing on Sunday morning, but then we segment that away from the rest of our life in the marketplace. And Jesus is saying, no, you need to be pure in heart Everywhere you go, it's integrated into everything. The gospel changes who we are in every single context. It infiltrates our family, our work, our neighborhood, our schools, our, our finances, and even our board games when you're playing Monopoly. You need to be pure in heart. Maybe even poker. It's redemption's core value number two. All of life is all for Jesus. And this is when we really begin to see God work when the gospel permeates our entire lives. Verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God, or the children of God. Um, God's character is one of shalom. You've heard that word before. We generally translate the, the word shalom as peace. But again, it's so much deeper than this translation. Shalom literally means a state of complete well-being in harmony with God, with others, with creation, and with yourself. A state of complete well-being and harmony with God, with others, with creation, and with self. But this state of shalom means that the only way you and I can get there is to completely empty ourselves. There's that, that idea of self-emptiness again. Harmony does not come through assertion, but through submission. That is the constant message of the gospel. Verse 10. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Persecution. Enduring persecution is the ultimate evidence or fruit of placing Jesus and our commitment to him above everything else. It means that you and I walk the talk. And like Jesus, through the cross, it's also the path to resurrection. It's the path to life. It's the path to being created new, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians. And then verses 10 and 11, I'm sorry, verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for, it is your, for, it is, for your reward is great in heaven, So they persecute, for they so persecuted the prophets who were before you. Notice that there are two mentions of the, of the persecution thing, not one, but two. Why is that? Primarily, I would say it's because the vast majority of people want faith or religion or philosophy or worldview or education as a means to eliminate tension, pain, and suffering in life and to just bring us perfect ease and bliss. That's essentially what people are looking for. They want that system of faith or religion or philosophy that just brings them a life of perfection and ease. And thankfully, God and his word are really the only one that I've ever been able to find that gives us the truth. Life is hard. Amen? Jesus says, hey, man, let's not dress this thing up and have you be disappointed with the reality of what life is like. I'm going to tell you, life is hard. And so this faith, this gospel thing, is not to help you get around the trouble in life, but rather how to go through with God's power and strength. To just think that you can go around all of these hardships is just pure fantasy. Instead, we face life with God. And he says, you're going to be reviled for this. You're going to be hated. Jesus reminds us that they persecuted God's prophets in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, they persecuted him. They dumped him in a well. What makes us think that we're going to get off any easier? They also, by the way, persecuted Jesus. That thing with the cross, that was persecution. They also persecuted Paul. They threw stones at him. They tried to kill Paul. What makes us think we're going to escape? What makes us think that this is going to be any easier for us when the person that we place our faith in has already shown us what real life is going to be like in the faith? Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 3, we are to rejoice in our suffering. That just sounds so odd, but he says you rejoice in your suffering because in the gospel, in faith, that suffering leads to perseverance, and that perseverance leads to the development of our character, and that development of our character helps us to understand the great hope that we have in Jesus coming again. Suffering, perseverance, character, hope. That's the reality of the gospel. And Jesus embodies every single one of these beatitudes on the cross. Jesus was poor in spirit. He was willing to submit to the cross. And if anybody shouldn't have submitted to the cross, it was him, but he was poor in spirit. He mourned for those who put him there. He's up there praying for the very people who are reviling him and who put him on the cross. He mourned for them. And he was meek. You understand meek, power under 
control. Do you understand that at any moment, Jesus, God, could have gotten off, off the cross, walked up to those who were reviling him and spitting on him and, and mocking him and just pinched their little heads up. Hey, I'm God. Off with your head. He could have done that at any point. He didn't. He was meek. He went to the cross because he hungered and thirsted for righteousness for us. He wanted what he has for us. Jesus didn't talk about mercy, but he lived mercifully by going to the cross for us. Jesus' Jesus's pure heart is imputed to us through the cross. Jesus made peace between God and us by going to the cross. And the cross, it was the ultimate in persecution, and he was totally reviled while he was there. But this is also what brings us into the kingdom of God. So let me close with a couple of things. These verses, I know, to a lot of people, I've read this uh, and I've heard other people talk about it, they sound a, a lot like Jesus is calling us to follow the law. I've heard it described as a new Ten Commandments, that, that it's a code, but it's not like that at all. One of the things that we need to understand about the Ten Commandments, which are beautiful and necessary and we embrace and we love, but the challenge with the Ten Commandments is that the Ten Commandments revealed the heart of God, the love of God, the will of God, and the wisdom of God, but the Ten Commandments gave us absolutely no power to live them. It shows us who we are without God, but doesn't give us the power. Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, gives us the power to be able to actually start living these beatitudes, these blessings. That's where we get the power. If we just try to do it, it's completely unsustainable. This is about the power of the gospel to transform lives and to live as new creations. Here's the fallacy. And this is a fallacy that most of us have, even in church. I keep the law. I become a good person somehow. I clean up my act. God loves and approves of me because I've cleaned up my act. And then Jesus saves me. Here's the truth. Jesus saves me. <laughs> he meets us where we are. He says, you bring nothing to this party but your sin. He saves us. And God loves us because he finds us worthy in Christ. And you and I are therefore empowered to live as he calls us to. And even when we don't, Jesus already did. And Paul says, we're in Christ. Case closed. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. Several years ago, when I first got to redemption... And this has happened a number of times, but when I first got to Redemption, I was asked to do a wedding, and it was a wedding with um, uh, a couple of, uh, a, a really young couple that both grew up somewhat Catholic, in the Catholic Church, one much stronger than the other. Uh, the father of the bride was especially a strong and committed Catholic. He's probably in his 50s. And... Um, this couple had decided to not go to the Catholic Church anymore. They started coming to redemption, maybe even praxis before um, I got here. Uh, and, and they wanted to get married. And so I, I officiated their wedding for them. I spent a lot of time that weekend with their family and stuff um, here in town and got to know some of them. Um, didn't really get to know the father of the bride that well, though. He was a little bit standoffish, uh, kind of kept his distance. So finally, after the ceremony at the reception, um, he was sitting in this, it was before dinner, and it's kind of the cocktail hour, and he was sitting there having a drink, and, and he said, hey, preacher man, come over here and sit by me. So, okay, here we go. 
so I go over and I sit down, and, and he says, uh, <clears throat> you know, I got to tell you, I was, I was, uh, I'm still pretty disappointed that my daughter has left the Catholic Church and has decided to go to your church. Um, it's really hard on me. But, you know, having listened to what you said during the wedding ceremony to your sermon, I'm beginning to think that maybe she, she, yeah, she might be okay. Thanks. Um, <laughs> but really, that was his sort of opening to, to have a, he wanted to have a theological discussion with a pastor, and he starts talking to me. And, um, and he starts talking about the importance of the Catholic tradition and the Catholic faith, which, by the way, that's our, you understand, that's the history of the church, the Catholic church. Catholic literally means universal, okay? So I'm listening, and he's talking about the importance of works to our salvation. You got you to work to be worthy so that God can save you through Christ. You got you to get to church. You got to do these things. And he just, he's really talking about the works part of his salvation, but he's talking about it as to be made worthy so that God can then save you through Christ. And at one point, he even said this. His words, not me. He said, you know, take the Mormons, for instance. He says, man, they are such good people. They really understand that works part, but they don't get the Jesus part. They don't understand that he's also God. So he's talking about how, see, the works are really good. And so I'm listening to this. And finally, at one point, I just said, can I ask you a question? And, and I said, I'm not expecting an answer right now. I just want to ask you this question. You're, you're really committed to this, and I understand that, and that's good. But I want to ask you a question and just let you ruminate on that for a while. I said, what if the true gospel, I said, what if the true gospel is not us work, 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 making ourselves worthy, fixing up our lives, and then presenting ourselves to God so that he might then save us through Christ. What if that's not the true gospel? What if the true gospel is that God, in his, as we sometimes sing here, his condescending love comes down and meets us exactly where we are, in the muck and the mire of our, of our life. He knows that we're sinners, and he meets us right where we are and saves us. He changes our heart, not because we're worthy to be saved, but because of his character, which can't help but love us and shower us with mercy. I say, what if that's the true gospel? And then as a result of that love and him changing our hearts and him saving us, what if then we go out and do the work of the kingdom out of joy and gratitude? And he stared at me. It felt like five minutes. But he stared at me for about 30 seconds with his mouth half open. And I just waited. And finally he said, I've never had anybody ask me that question before. I'm going to have to think about that. And he got up and went back to the bar. <laughs> so I don't necessarily have a happy ending but do you get it? Do you get it? This is the true gospel. This is what we believe. Luther had it correct. Christianity is not you and me preparing a life of righteousness to present to God, but rather God has prepared the perfect life of righteousness in Jesus, and he presents it to us. Amen? All right, let's pray and have our time of reflection. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth. God, we just pray that we would get this, that, that it is your power your Holy Spirit, your resurrected Son, who fills us and lives in us, God, 
and that we can start to chip away at this kingdom politic and start living this way. God, we pray that you would help us to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.